0: Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Talking Dirty. Over at East Ruston Old Vicarage, looking kind of charismatic in caramel, we have Alan, (laughs) Edward, Herbert Grey, our very handsome and happy horticulturalist.
1: Well, I am happy. I mean, why not be happy? It's a lovely, lovely morning. I've been watching the weather um, on the television this morning and there was a wonderful grey blank screen and that, <laughs> that was sent in by a weather watcher, um, and it was just fog. We haven't had that here this morning. It's got a little bit overcast now, but it was a beautiful morning earlier on. But anyway, over in Cambridge here, we have Thordis Maria Sophia Fredriksson looking absolutely shall I say, um, couched up in coral. I wouldn't get, I'm not gonna call that orange because it's not bright enough, but it's a lovely warm shade of coral. But you know, she's done the great thing that she always does. She's matched it to her lipstick.
0: It's all about a strong lip. It's about the only makeup I can still be bothered with after 2020. Um.
2: That's what your mother used to say. Yeah. <laughs>
0: And joining us for the first time on the podcast, we have featured his wonderful wife, but we have Mr. Lever, Alexander Lever, our master arborist extraordinaire. Welcome to Talking Dirty.
2: Well, yes, and and hello.
0: (laughs) He's just put the fire on, so he's smug. We might see layers stripped off uh, as the
2: podcast. As we go, I might reveal more.
0: You can leave your hat on and all that. Do you, have, do you have a middle name to bring to the party?
2: I do. I, I'm, I'm a Thomas in the middle.
0: Ah, Alexander Thomas Laver. Uh, yeah. You are obviously a tree specialist. How did that come about?
2: How did that come about? I um, started off doing more sort of game and wildlife and estate management type stuff. That's what I wanted to do. So I headed off up to Newton Rig in Cumbria. Now Newton Rig is famous for being a forestry college. So everybody that went through the doors of Newton Rig, whatever unit you were doing, and mine was definitely very relevant to it, but you always seem to get bolted on at a forestry module. It was just part and parcel. And then anybody that was doing anything practical, you got to play with chainsaws as well. So that was kind of my introduction to the tree world. And then from there, I sort of finished my course and it was at the time that all the hunting bands and things like that were happening and coming in. And all the estates were kind of, you know, they were worried. They were thinking, is everything just going to stop? Our kind of the way we do everything just going to kind of stop? And so everybody that had a job anywhere didn't move. So the job market at that point just went flat as a pancake for two years. Nobody was moving from an estate. So any kind of estate management, gamekeeping, deer management jobs, Nothing, so I found myself then using my chainsaw, so instead of doing that, I then started subcontracting and going to the estates I had been working on um to do sort of felling and thinning work and that kind of thing and because I'd then sort of done that, I kept in touch with a couple of my forestry uh, tutors um and Cumbria at that stage had a real problem with a lack of professional arborists um They've got the beautiful national parks, but the tree officers were really complaining. It's just nobody's nobody knows how to take care of these trees properly. So there's a charity called Cumbria Broadleaf, who so I'm indefinitely grateful to, that um, had put on a sort of sponsored course in Cumbria, and they'd asked um, the colleges that, you know, they'd advertised it through their sort of membership. They'd asked the colleges um, to look for people that with background in, sort of horticulture, some in sort of forestry, that kind of thing, that would be good candidates, and I got offered a place. Um, So we did that for a summer. From there, I then learned how to climb and then learned more about arboriculture.
0: It's the climbing aspect I would be deeply uncomfortable with, but which people forget about, that you do have to not just have all the knowledge about trees and how to manage them, but this extra skill as well.
2: Of not falling off, yeah it certainly adds to it I mean it's uh, I joke to people sometimes that I now do a job my mother used to tell me off for um (laughs) doing when I was younger because you know and even now I go and prune her willow tree um and she can't look she can't watch she just she just disappears somewhere else in the house she can't can't come out when I'm busy working and doing stuff can't do it so yeah in in some in some respects that's quite good fun I mean it's used to clamber around trees in the garden and trees around the fen and bits and pieces where I grew up just outside Ely. I um, was always clambering out and doing stuff. And so, yeah, or climbing up mountains. That was the other thing.
0: <laughs> and Alan, obviously, we've heard you say before uh, the importance of arborists for any gardener. It's unlikely if you're into gardening that you won't need an arborist at some point in your life.
1: Uh, well, especially in these trying times when we having these wonderful gales that we've had. I mean, we in a recent gale here, we had 15 trees um blow down mm. and they're probably slightly more than that natural fact but they're the immediate ones that we know and about four or five of those are large trees large eucalypts and, and um monterey pines um all of which have got to be dealt with um and i'm a great yeah. one for you know it's it, beth chateau always used to say right plant in the right place i'm going to say the right man for the right job because an awful lot of, you know, they buy themselves a chainsaw, they've got no training and they think, oh, I'll just chop that up, you know, but there are techniques, tricks and all the rest of it that they don't know that people like Alexander does know. Um, And you need to have somebody professional to do the job for you. And not only do they just do the job for you, but they also, if you're lucky, um, we've got a very good one um, in Ian Flatters who lives locally to us. I mean, he's so tidy. I don't know whether it's anything to do with the fact that he comes with his wife Jenny. It probably is.
2: <laughs> I don't know I think I think arborists in the uk especially and and we're we're quite sought after breed internationally. and I think it's just because of our garden. the way we um see our gardens, we're quite tidy minded gardeners in the UK. You know, you go across into Europe and it, they have a different sort of aesthetic with their gardens and, and ways. In the UK, if it's not left spick and span, court cool dear, they're, they're <laughs> going to tut about you. <laughs> no, that's all they did. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I know I, I take great pride about leaving a garden tidier than when I've entered it. And if if I'm doing tree pruning, especially, you, you kind of go into the garden, you sort of prune the trees. And then if the client walks out the garden almost looks exactly the same but the trees you know a little bit smaller and it's achieved what they want but they can't actually see where you've been in the tree that's the biggest compliment to me you know it's just like you know soft soft touch we've done the work we've gained the extra light they've seen all the waste come out of the garden but they walk out again and go I can't see where you've been (laughs) I think that's always always the trick yeah
0: arguably this is a time of year when even people who aren't Gardeners or into trees suddenly start to notice them. It's that season when everybody looks up and and sort of basks in the glory of, of autumn. And um, it must be even better when you know the trees and you're you're kind of looking around. I mean, you look around all year, but there must be so much to enjoy now for an arborist.
2: Yes, definitely. I mean, it's um we're in splendid isolation at the minute here at Labour HQ because we've um, just went over to uh, Belgium for a wedding. A lovely drive then all the way down through. Thetford and all the beach um, woodlands and the birch through there and the, and the conifers and you get all the, the larch and stuff um, and then dropping down then uh, heading down the M11 corridor is a bit boring isn't it I mean that's just the same old planting mix isn't it I just like and anything that's going to catch litter A um, anything that's going to stop people climbing out of their cars climbing up the bank and, and trespassing B um, kind of species. But then, when you got down into Kent and that kind of way, that was really interesting seeing sort of the different, um, how autumn was looking differently just that few miles further south to where we were up in, in Norfolk and traveling through.
0: Of course, the other thing that you end up doing a lot is not just tree pruning and tree management, but a lot of hedge planting and hedge management as well.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, that's what I was doing yesterday. I mean, a glorious day yesterday. I'm sort of using this 14 days as an enforced holiday. and. I've got this very long job list I never quite got to in the first lockdown.
0: It's worth saying for anyone who, who's wondering why Alexander is in, in isolation, basically went to a wedding and is now you know, stuck at home, having to isolate, mm. having been to Belgium. So you're, you're trapped uh, in, in, north, in North Norfolk, which is really <laughs> not bad. Let's talk hedges then, because I know that there are plenty of people who want to plant a really nice mixed hedge or, or mm-hmm. you know, a beautiful hedge for a, a crisp line and they're looking for inspiration. So as someone who goes around managing lots of hedges for, you know, councils or clients, what would be your mm-hmm. recommendations for for what to plant and how to look after it?
2: Um, stay away from Lalandai, however cheap <laughs> it may seem. Um, Lalandei in the right place at the right time is very good as a, as a screening species. Um, mix it in with a few other conifers in a kind of block screen so far as sort of councils are concerned absolutely brilliant for that as long as you give them enough room Um, if not sort of the land eyes themselves um, just cost you more money than that you ever thought possible um, in the amount of time to look after them and as soon as you let them get ahead of you you're stuffed because they're a species that won't ever come back from hardwood cuttings so you can only ever trim the green off as far back as the edge of the green. Otherwise, you'll get these horrible brown patches and you see it. You, you drive around and people have decided that, all oh, that hedge is too much and they cut the side off it and they're just left with a whole load of really quite horrible skanky brown sticks, aren't they? I mean, it's what, what are they going to do then? I Put see, a fence up in I front of I seem there. to
0: remember Alan once saying, you know, you might as well just spray paint it green.
2: <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> It definitely is. I mean, especially with the sort of um, little spider blight that we get on conifers as well. I've seen some people's hedges go completely brown within two seasons because they they haven't thought, oh, why is that going brown and sort of addressed it. And it's it's quite an easy thing to address and get on top of. and then, yeah, I think the best thing is, is to get somebody out that's very good at spray painting and um, paint it green, um, especially <laughs> if you get someone good, because if they'll take three greens and blend it in um, rather than just a, a solid kind of, um, you know, pool tapeable uh, base. I
1: think, you know, they almost ought to be, um, Lalandia should come with a warning on it.
2: I think so, yeah, a bit, a bit, like, a, a bit like cigarettes do. <laughs> 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 Government warning. Yeah.
0: A picture of one of those brown patches, you know, on the plant.
2: Uh, yeah, well just just, just like the, think about how these trees grow in the wild. And yeah, do you realize the finished height of this tree will be approximately 30 meters?
1: Alex, I think that's often why the um why some of the hedges fail, because they are basically trees that are mm. tortured. <laughs> but why that's do I, the trick. Know, why don't people do? I mean, I remember. Going around the countryside, and I mean there was there was a particular hedge that I used to go past quite regularly when I used to cycle to school. Um, mm. the hedge was a boundary hedge on a farmhouse, and it's only a small farmhouse. Mm. And at the end of the hedge, they the chap who cut the hedge fashioned it to look like a locomotive. So oh, a okay. train, you know, I used to go past this yeah, train yeah. which just cut as a hedge. And on the other end, there was a pheasant that had been, you know, made yeah. out of its um, and he did actually made a form and and uh, you know uh, form for the get the tail feathers out and all the rest of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was just beautifully done. I think people years ago used to do an awful lot more of that. They used to practice this kind of quirky individuality. I suppose they didn't have a television, so it's something to do. And well,
2: they, they wouldn't have been sitting on their laptops watching us. would they, well, they I mean, I suppose. No, you're absolutely <laughs> right. They would. We're distracting them. I think we're we're part of the problem here, Alan.
0: <laughs> 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 we can also be part of the solution. <laughs>
2: Ah, oh, well, there we go. Okay, that's a good... Well, well done, we well, well recovered. Actually,
0: I did see, I drove up a road I never normally drive, I took a different route yesterday, and someone has, a, not very far from me, has a massive, possibly blackbird, possibly pigeon, a kind of weird bird hybrid, that are absolutely colossal at the end of their A working
2: in progress. I think, I think you find that that's what that is. Yeah. That's a working in progress.
0: As
1: you know, years ago, it was a well-known fact that in the 19th century, Wealthy people would go around the countryside and they would, or or they would be, wealthy people would probably be told that in a garden, so-and-so, there's a cottage garden, there's two wonderful dumpling ewes, you know, three dumplings, one on top of the other, um, that kind of thing, and then the the master of the house would send his his man round to offer them money for them and they would dig them up, you know, I'm getting money for something. It costs me nothing. You know, dig oh. take them away to the big house and, and start a topiary garden or something. But so yeah. on yeah. the
0: other side, I do think there's, you know, if you move into a house like I do, there's kind of nothing there. So you, you move in, mm. if you don't know about plants or you are maybe a bit impatient like me, you've, you're overlooked by houses. Nobody's planted okay. anything in the past. So you haven't got a mature tree to bring some structure. So there is a kind of, a need to move things along a bit quicker because if you move into a garden and it's got trees and hedges and things then you're yeah. you're that kind of step along so I, I have a lot of
2: Yeah, and then before, before you know it, you've got the land eye hedge down one side <laughs> a big clump of bamboo that is now 18 feet into your garden um yeah yeah you see how it happens oh
0: you see how it happens
2: yeah it's, quite, it's 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 an easy easy trap to fall into I must have so I said we I like, I like the warning labels I think we should do that on several <laughs> parts.
0: I said we'd be part of the solution as well as the problem what then is the quickest non leyland solution? I mean, apart from putting up a massive fence and trellis, like what would be the next quickest growing or, or affordable at least hedge?
2: Yew is surprisingly fast growing. Everybody <laughs> says, "Oh, yew takes forever to get going," and no, you, you, um, if if you prepare your ground properly, um, give it. Give it plenty of muck, manure um, and give a bit of blood, fish and bone. Just make sure what sort of soil you're putting it into. It's fairly tolerant of shade and that kind of thing as well. And as small plants, they're very vigorous. So you have one of those sort of understory trees that will sit quietly and wait for their opportunity. Um, so they'll sow and if you wander through woodlands with you in them you'll see that they sort of self set about, the birds self set them about and you'll see these little trees popping up and you think oh that's quite a young tree, that's quite small but it may sit there quietly in the shade not really getting much and it could easily be 10 years old but it looks like it's only just popped up two years ago and then suddenly it'll got an opportunity, a tree will blow over in that woodland, it will get the light and away it goes, so when you get sort of young you stock plants and you plant them out you're giving them that opportunity of of light and getting away and they're actually in that very first part of their sort of cycle they're in that young growing phase and they grow quite quickly now if you make the mistake and try and get them too big that's your problem with you so if people try and get oh well get we'll get a bit of instant instant hedge isn't so bad because they've treated it the right way but if they get like pop grown um, use and they think, well, we'll get them three, four foot, or oh, oh, look, we can get them five foot straight out of the bag, but they want to achieve a, a seven, eight foot hedge maybe, or, or you know a, a six foot hedge. What happens then, they, they get planting shock and you don't actually get the hedge filling up. And I think that's where they've got their reputation of being really slow growing and not establishing particularly well. So if you do your due diligence, you look after them and plant them well and buy a little bit smaller, what you'll find is you'll fill a hedge out very, very quickly. Um, and, and they collect beautifully.
1: I'm going to agree with that except for one thing because, I mean, g- I think good husbandry is the commodity that you have to give a, a hedge of any kind anyway. Let's just say we're buying yew trees, um, 45 centimetres, 18 inches tall, we're buying yew plants, we're putting mm. the, we say they're bare root, they come with the roots wrapped or something like that, leave that wrapping on yeah, yeah. properly in good soil, make sure you feed and water them, they will grow 8 inches a, a year. And people think that's, well, that's not much, but it is when you have to go and cut it. Um, (laughs) That's one of the last things you said, Alexander, that people can, in actual fact, buy ewes um, three, four feet tall and then want a hedge uh, six to eight feet tall. Well, that is exactly what we did here. When we bought extra land, we wanted a a hedge around our driveway. And the only hedging, the ewe hedging that we could find was, in actual fact, a fastidiate ewe. And they were around about... About a meter, meter and a bit tall, root wrapped. We planted them, and I have to say they, they have made a most wonderful hedge. And they—and I think probably because we gave them the attention that they deserved, um, not just because we wanted them to grow properly, but we didn't want to waste our money either.
2: <laughs> no, no, <it's> just, <laughs> and they have done very,
1: very well. But I mean, it, it does take that diligence.
2: I was just thinking of other other good examples of um, hedges that will do you well long term. Um, Beach, beach is one that it's you've got to be confident you haven't got any armillaria or penny fungus or anything like that about. So uh, I'd always go for hornbeam over beach if ever I, if ever I had a choice. Um, but hornbeam hedge is lovely because it holds its leaf so well. Um, and then if if you want some red robins and you want to grow them into hedge, they do make a very lovely hedge, Mr. Gray. Um, <laughs>
1: Well, Mr. labor I'm going to disagree with you completely because um, we have two sides to our garden here at East Ruston. One side we planted with beech hedge because that was the, the hedge of our choice. Hmm. Um, and beech also holds on to its leaves in the, in, the, in the winter as well.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: And the other side, because we've got beech one side of the garden, the other side we decided we'd use hornbeam just in case there's some disease befell beech.
2: Yeah, bit of resilience.
1: We're hedging our bets. Hornbeam looks drab and dreary in the winter because the leaves go to a dull khaki color, but the leaves of beech glow oh, okay. that glows in the wind low rays of the winter sunshine. So I would disagree with you there, but the, the only thing I would say um, between the two is that beech likes a sandier, a lighter soil, yes. hornbeam will tolerate a wetter soil. So yes. there are things that you have to take in consideration when you're choosing to have a hedge, but why not have a mixed hedge? I mean, one of the, I'm sort of thinking that some of our hedges are, are mixed hedges here. They're almost like field boundary type hedges, but we cut, we cut them and we manage them. Field maple, for instance, it goes this wonderful butter yellow as Nancy said yeah, yeah. in, in the autumn, and it's absolutely lovely. It's a very good plant for hedges. Hawthorn, and I've got beech, and I've got holly. Now mm. into those two, you will get, into those four plants, you will get, that's a nice mixture for, for wildlife.
2: Mm.
1: Evergreen in there, but birds will introduce ivy because mm. they'll eat the ivy seeds and pull at the top of the hedge and drop it down to the bottom, and yeah. up you know up goes an ivy. But so does honeysuckle. Just think how lovely that is when you're roaming around your estate in the evenings, and suddenly in May June you get this waft of wonderful perfume from honeysuckle. But you're also going to get a couple of bad boys in there. I have to say you're going to get brambles. Now, if you want to harvest lots of blackberries, we'll lo- you'll lose you leave them, but you'll lose your hedge. And the other thing. It's yeah. a dog rose, which is very romantic and very pretty, the English dog rose. But, you know, nobody wants to go near those, those two plants because they're packed with thorns that are very injurious. So they're two that you need to get rid of. But I think a mixed hedge is absolutely lovely. Before we leave hedges, um, one thing I do rather like the idea of, and we did we did it here for a while, but then we took them out because they were in the wrong place. But there's a funny plant called, it's an evergreen plant, and it's called... Ligustrum japonicum. Well, Ligustrum is a privet, and Ligustrum japonicum is evergreen. It's got slightly oval leaves, but it's got this weird habit of growth where it sort of grows in sort of bumpy shapes. And oh, okay.
2: So it makes a lovely he, cloud prune.
1: Absolutely. This is like a naturally yeah. cloud pruned hedge, which you can ex- exaggerate if you want to.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, which brings us back, kind of thing, doesn't it, to the people doing the topiarized bits and pieces in their garden. And yes, I think that would be a very up.
2: quick way of um, yeah. That those those sort of privets um, work very well for that kind of quick topiary, and you you see that in the the sort of the the, the um, slightly slightly less expensive end of the topiary market. You see them yeah, using. Talk,
1: I think you're talking about Alex, the small leaf ones, which you need to clip more than once a year. Like Astilbe yes. panicum, you don't need to clip more than once a year. Oh,
2: well, that's excellent uh, then. Yeah,
1: because that's relatively slow growing, but. I mean, always remember the cardinal rule about hedging plants is the faster it grows, the more you've got to clip it. Mm-hmm. I mean, take an old ligustrum period,
2: you know, privet. I mean, oh, yeah. it, it,
1: you know, two or three feet, one.
2: If you want a really nice tight, tight hedge, I'd say. Yeah. yeah, easy.
0: So after all of our tree and hedge talk with our master arborist, what have you brought for show and tell Alexander Lever?
2: What I've got here is um, a great book and it's only been out a couple of years um now this is uh, it's a superb book it's called the central pruning techniques trees shrubs and conifers um and it was written originally by uh, a chap called georgie Broom brown sorry um and then in more recent years tony kirkham who is um the man behind kew gardens these days so he's the creator down at kew gardens Um, revise this and modernize this Um, and it is an absolutely superb book so if you've got anything I mean there's there's bits of hedges in here there's um, lovely uh, detail in the back for each of the different species so all throughout here we can choose any kind of species that you've got um, in your garden and it will tell you the sort of way that that tree wants to grow So it'll it'll give you its sort of blueprint and its form, and then it will give you how you can then prune and reduce that and what it will tolerate, what it won't tolerate. Um, So it's a really useful guide and a useful book. Um, There's even a section here when your bamboos get a little bit out of control, um, (laughs) bamboos. But then at the front end of the book, um, what we've got is um, a whole guide on different tree forms so it also helps you not only with sort of pruning and doing that but it helps you um, think about what tree that you want and what shape and form that you want in the first place so if you're starting from a bare patch I know it sounds crazy to get a book on pruning and looking after it but actually start with a bit of research on okay what what forms do I want to get to what do I want to manipulate and if we go back to sort of topiary that's that's a classic one really of what do i want to manipulate what do i want to get so right tree right place right plant right place is really important but then there are some things that we can manipulate and do funky things with that will cope really well with it rather than getting something in there and then trying to do that and realizing it's a species that's it's not going to play ball you know it's just gonna it's gonna beat you up and frustrate you and you'll, you'll it'll die or it'll um it'll do whatever but then there's really good detail on pruning um techniques and then different kinds of pruning cuts to use for sort of different species and and selections. So there you go, Mr. Kirkham, there's a good book advert for you. (laughs) Um, Just remember that next time I'm down at Kew, the Italian restaurant just around the corner is superb. I really enjoyed the last time we went there.
0: So from show and tell to Flomo, Mine isn't a tree or a hedge, but it's something that, you know, if I ever end up with a tree big enough, I could grow through it. I am, um, after we had Ian Roof on this podcast uh, and we got sucked into Clematis and Clematis Redriana, I then kind of got transported into a Clematis vortex online. Um, mm-hmm. And and actually, for anyone who can't can't remember what Flomo is, or who hasn't encountered Flomo before, perhaps this is the first time you're listening to this podcast. It's that kind of fear fear of missing out you get when you see a plant um, that you want that you haven't got, and looking through. As someone who only has a couple of clematis, looking through this clematis website, oh, I just wanted so many of them. I finally settled on the one I wanted the most was Swedish bells, because I'm a sucker for any kind of like nice bell-like flower. And yeah. I wondered, Mr. Gray, whether you knew Swedish bells and whether or not I should get it.
1: I don't know Swedish bells in actual fact, but I mean, is this, is this a winter flowering clematis? Sounds more like an exotic dancer to me. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it looks a bit more like an exotic dancer. I don't I think it is, thinking, <laughs> I don't think it is winter flowering. But no. um, I must confess, I'm not much of a clematis expert.
1: Well, I think I think um, talking about clematis for a minute. I mean, if we if we can, I mean, not much to say, not really. But there are. It's worth exploring some of the winter flowering clematis because if you've got a very sheltered spot, or even a cold greenhouse, or a cold conservatory. Those winter-flowering clematis make superb plants for those sheltered places, because mm-hmm. often their flowers um, they get bashed about by the weather and things like that. And there's not much flowering in the winter time. But if you've got a, a a cold greenhouse or a cold conservatory, you get one of those in a pot, and they'll open for you. I mean, it's amazing how how hot it can get underneath the glass, and it just urges them along a little bit. Um, and I just think some of the winter-flowering clematis are well worth. Um, shall we say, bothering with, because, um, you know, it's the kind of time when people are not often in their gardens, but if you've got them in a in a cold greenhouse or, you know, in a conservatory that adjoins the house, what joy they give you through the dark months. Hmm.
0: One, The one thing I did discover the more I looked into Clematis was how many of them seemed to suggest they wanted freer draining soil than I can provide.
1: Well, I think, yes. Well, I mean, one of the things that Clematis um, really do like is just shaded root run. Um, yep. So, you know, give give them, dig some um, gravel into the soil. And if you can't give them a shaded root run, we'll put a two inch mulch of gravel over the top of the, uh, the, the root area. Because the one thing about gravel is even in the hottest days, if you pull it apart, it's always moist underneath, thanks to the condensation that occurs. So just bear that in mind that gravel Will give you wonderful moisture-retentive qualities, and a little bit dug into the soil improves the drainage as well.
2: You see a lot of people using old broken pan tiles and that kind of thing as well, just to yeah. sort of lay over, uh, over the top and and shade roots. And but it's also great, and anything like that is always great for catching that bit of moisture, isn't it? And keep yeah, it being, is. Yeah.
1: I mean, one of the great things if you if you if you plant other plants around the base of your clematis, all those other plants are going to be taking moisture out of the soil. Whereby, if you give it a gravel mulch. A nice uh, medium-sized grit or a heavy-sized grit, even if it's on the surface, you're keeping that moisture there.
2: Yes, and then if, if it's looking a little bit unsightly, that's that's where the pot goes in front rather than uh, planting in <laughs> the ground. Yeah.
0: <laughs> now, Alexander, when we were having our pre-podcast production chat, um, I, I think you were kind of intimating there was a lot of flow in your life because your wife, who's already featured on this podcast, the <laughs> award-winning garden designer Tamara Bridge, um, probably has first dibs on a lot of the planting spots in your garden. <laughs>
2: uh, yes, <laughs> <laughs> definitely. She, she'll be experimenting with different things or she'll be um, trying something new for a client. Um, and she will she'll get a few herself and, and give them a go and, and 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 look at combinations and that kind of thing. So real estate in our garden is um, is quite limited. So I've, I'm quite lucky with some of the trees that we we inherited when we first moved in, and I've campaigned for a long time to keep one conifer in there, um, which I think tomorrow's finally decided that conifers are good in the right place at the right time. Um, it's a lovely, <laughs> lovely slow glowing uh, cypress. Um, so that's you know that's that's lovely but yeah I, I'd dearly love um, a nice sort of chunk of land to plant an arboretum and some sort of screening and some woodland around so my list of flomo probably tree wise is um, quite long and various I'd say. Um, so if you could
0: minute. steal if Tamara wasn't looking and you could steal one planting spot what do you think would go in I first?
2: For Something really small I was thinking about this so I will have to be tactical <laughs> somebody I did some work from a couple of years ago, not so far away from here in Swaffham, has a, a lovely collection of, I think they started getting into sort of bonsais and they got too big so they planted them in the garden. They've got a lovely collection of very small trees and quite interesting little miniature mountain trees and pines and that kind of thing. And I did fall in love with a lovely little one from New Zealand, which is called the Mountain Rimuru or the pygmy pine. And that's the tiniest little thing. Um, but I think that's just, great because i think i like the idea of that whole tree structure being quite small i quite like the idea of um, bonsais and i've played around with those sometimes but what you're doing there is you're kind of manipulating something to be small whereas this naturally grows very small and um, you can really see how the sort of plant growth structures work and how each reiteration of its sort of blueprint works so yeah i think that would be great one of those
0: Pygmy pine, that sounds brilliant.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> right then, Alan, what is your Flamo this week?
1: Mine is something I already have, but uh, I've, I've been reading about um, another variety of it, and it's, it's, it's actually Cupressus cashmiriana. And I don't know whether any of you can remember visiting large country houses, and quite often in the orangery of some of these large country houses, there was this wonderful, weeping, glaucus, blue-gray cedar. Uh, mm-hmm. Cupressus, I mean. Uh, and it just used to have these lovely pendant tassels of this lovely blue-grey foliage, and I always loved them. And I remember um, being able to get one, and it came from Burncoast and Southdown Down Nurseries on, in Cornwall. Um, and we grew it in a in a pot in the greenhouse or conservatory for years and years and years, got too big, put it in the garden, it never looked back. We were always told they weren't hardy, and probably they <laughs> weren't in those days. We're right, it's climate change and we're in Norfolk. <laughs> well, exactly that, yeah. But I was reading about um, a compressors cashmere put on the internet by Pan Global, and they, the owner of that nursery is called Nick Mesa. And he's one of these, he's a lovely fella, and he's one of these guys that just down tools and goes off plant hunting, and he's got um, a cupressus Kashmiriana, and it's got a number KR8688A um, asamica in brackets beneath it, uh, next to it. It comes from the Western Aranchal Prandash Prandesh, and it is the true species, which is hardier than the one in general cultivation, and it is mm-hmm. the very, very best and most beautiful of the Kashmiriana conifers. So I want to get one of those, just just to say, well, just to say I've got it, really. But I mean, <laughs> if it's hardy, I want to, and if it's more beautiful, I want to know about it, and I want to compare it to my ordinary Cupressus C- C- Kashmiriana. So I'm just looking for that tree that comes from the, ro- the Western Aranchal Prandesh. That sounds exotic, doesn't it? it
0: really does. does. That sounds very exciting. Wow. Well, let's go from your, your. where was it from again?
1: <laughs> Western Aranchal Pradesh.
0: We'll go from your Pradesh,
1: Pradesh sorry.
0: Your very exciting and exotic Um to a couple of quick questions before we have to wind things up on talking dirty. We've had some questions come in. Uh, one of them was in response to Alan's insanely popular lavender video anyone who's ever wanted to grow lavenders (laughs) from cuttings you need to check out Alan's video because something like a couple hundred thousand people have been enjoying (laughs) Alan uh, across the world telling them how to take uh, lavender cuttings and one of those people is Helen who's come across your video at the wrong time she wants to know if she can do this now in November what do you say to that Alan?
1: No I would just say flat frankly no but as, as, a, as, a, as an alternative to that, I always sort of think it's best to have a go but the, the problem with doing it in November is it's it's too cold the hours of daylight are reducing rapidly now um, and you, you know the, the more the less daylight there is the di- more difficult it is for cuttings to to root. And if they do root, what are they going to do then? I mean, there's no good sunshine or daylight to encourage them to grow. Um, So I would say, by and large, it is too late. If you have a propagator, why don't you have a go and just see what happens? You might not get a a great take from a batch of cuttings. Um, uh, The last batch of cuttings that I took um, of lavender was in August, um, the end of August, uh, beginning of September, and that is really too late. You really need to do them in July if you can. Um, and they're just so easy in a gritty compost. I mean, I remember years ago, we used to pack 70 cuttings into a seed box, 70 lavender cuttings into a seed box, and you put them somewhere, uh, uh, you know, somewhere sheltered outside with a pan glass over the top and they rooted like whoops, they say. Um, and then you pop them on individually and off you go. Um, so basically I would say, you know, the ideal time is July, but you know, Helen, have a go.
0: <laughs> have a go okay. with a bit of bottom heat.
1: <laughs> yes.
2: It's a <laughs> <We all laughs>
0: like that. <laughs> and then we also had an email from Craig in Glasgow. You can email hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk with your question. You can attach photos as Craig did. And he spotted something on the leaves of his palm. He wondered whether Alan you knew what it might be, and does it mean he needs to get rid of the plant?
1: Well, it looks, I mean, it's difficult to judge from a photograph because here we are on a small computer screen, laptop size screen, um, and it's difficult to judge, but it looks like some form of aphid infestation, which it doesn't seem to be too serious to me. I would use something called SP plant invigorator. It doesn't hurt anything else. And what it basically does, you spray it onto these, these aphids and it, it works its way through the waxy coating on their bodies and it prevents them breathing and they snuff it. Um, but plant invigorator is the, is the thing as well, because that gives the plant some feed, some foliar feed but invigorates it into, into, you know, come on, let's get on with it. But I think the thing I would have to say to Craig is um, spray it every day for five days and then every three days, at least for two weeks. Because you've got a, a plant invigorator. It, it, once you've sprayed it, it's gone. Um, it doesn't remain, and doesn't stay, and it's, it's kind of um, a gentle way of dealing with the problem, shall I say, and it's not going to interfere with anything else, but you've got to do it little and often to make sure that you you, you get rid of the pest, but S, B, plant invigorating.
0: There's your answer. Keep the questions coming in. We'll answer them on a future podcast. But for now, thank you very much, Alexander thomas Lever, our master master arborist extraordinaire, for joining us on the podcast and talking trees and hedges and all things fun and planty.
1: Thank you very much, Alex. Lovely to see you all. Bye-bye. Bye.
0: Bye. Happy gardening. Hey, Thordis here. Just to say thank you so much for listening to Talking Dirty. You are now officially our favourite person. If you really liked it, please do subscribe because we'll be back for more plant-loving mayhem next week. And as you're our new favourite person, we don't want you to miss out. If you've got a question for Alan and the experts, you can email it to hello at getgardeningnow.co.uk. So happy gardening and we'll see you,
2: oh favourite person, next time.